Well, I do just want to begin by affirming all of you here this morning. You know, next or last week, we talked about uh, the, the new commandment that Jesus has given to us, that we would be people who would love one another. And then we moved into this week, and we promptly had plenty of opportunity to do that because a wave of sickness overtook the church. And uh, many of you had the opportunity to express practical love to one another. And I was just so very encouraged uh, as a pastor to step back and to watch the way that so many of you jumped in to serve one another and to meet just very practical needs and to put feet to the faith that we talked about last week. And I was just very encouraged to see the application of what we've been studying put into practice. And I know that there are many of you here this morning still that are watching from home. And just know that we do love you, we miss you, and are looking forward to having you back with us just as soon as you are able to be back with us. Well, do take your Bibles and turn in them with me back to John chapter 13. We'll be finishing up this chapter this morning and moving our way on into chapter 14 as we pick up our study where we left it off. And this morning, I will begin by just asking you a question. When was the last time that you were truly terrified? I mean, weak in the knees, cotton-mouthed terror. For most of us in the adult world, see, it's probably been a minute since we've been quite that afraid. But if you were to ask my son Will that question you would discover that he knows very well what it, like, what it is like to be absolutely terrified. You see, there I was this week, one evening late, minding my own business, well after I had put him down to bed. And there was a disturbance of the peace in the neighborhood that rolled out of his bedroom. And as we burst through the door to figure out what kind of natural disaster had befallen the poor child, he informed us promptly that there was a bear in the corner of his room. And folks, I am telling you that that little guy believed that fiction with all of his heart. I mean, apparently he had discovered the power of his imagination. And so we looked everywhere. We turned the lights on. We, we looked out the windows. We went behind the curtains and under the bed. And, and he still wasn't convinced that there was not a bear in his room. And so I told him in my best fatherly voice, Son, I am so much bigger than whatever bear exists within your head. And let me tell you this, if a bear does come into this room, well then, Will, we're going to shoot him. And at that, he promptly went to sleep. <laughs> Problem solved. See, I, I, I tell you that story and I ask you that question to really set the tone for how this text opens up for us here in chapter 14. Because as we turn our attention into John chapter 14, we're going to find the disciples are absolutely terrified. They are weak-kneed, flushed-faced, bellowing around, saying crazy stuff. Four different disciples are going to speak up here in chapter 14, and all four have questions that reveal hearts of fearful terror. Why? Because if you remember back in chapter 13, Jesus just finished telling them that he was going to leave them that the hour for his departure had arrived, and the disciples don't hear anything else that Jesus just finished saying in chapter 13. 
In fact, they go shouldering right on past the new great commandment that Jesus just gave to them. They completely ignore the promised visibility of the glory of God that's going to be put on display through him. And they move past all of that and they cannot move past just the, the one statement that Jesus made back in verse 32 of chapter 13 when he said, where I am going, you cannot come. And so Peter, being the first to speak, says what's on everybody's mind. Now wait just a minute, Jesus. Your first words to us when we met you were that we should follow you. And now you're here to tell us that we can't follow you? No way. You can't leave. I won't let you. You see, there's terror. <laughs> there's fear there that you can hear in his voice. And so Jesus, here's what he's going to do. He's going to take the next 34 verses here at the end of chapter 13 all the way through the end of chapter 14 and he is going to take those 34 verses to speak calm and comfort into the chaotic hearts of his men. See, he, he takes them to the window, so to speak, and shows them that they have nothing to fear. And that's key to understanding what's going on here in chapter 14. Because this is a chapter that is all about Jesus comforting his disciples. See, as I went through the chapter, I counted up 40 different occasions where Jesus either promises his men something or affirms his men or seeks to comfort and encourage his men. And if you take all 40 of those statements and you glue them together, there is a single theme that emerges, and that is this. A relationship with Jesus that is based upon faith is always better than a relationship that is based on physical sight. You see, the reason why Jesus had to leave them was so that he could bring something better to them. And what he's trying to comfort them with here in chapter 14 is with the knowledge that their relationship with him in this new phase of redemptive history was going to be better, deeper, more substantive and intimate than anything that they had experienced with him during his time on earth. You see, they thought that they had a, a most special kind of relationship with him while they walked with him in the flesh, while they heard his words with their own ears, while they saw his deeds with their own eyes, while they, while they literally, John says in 1 John 1, 1, touched him with their hands. They thought that was as good as it could possibly get. But Jesus' message to them and to us here in chapter 14 is just wait till you see what it's like when Jesus lives inside of you. See, that is a better kind of relationship and and that is a most comforting truth for us in our own day people who have never laid physical eyes on Jesus Jesus says to them guys the life you're going to have as I take up residence within you is so much better than anything you've experienced as I've been here with you you see that is the kind of relationship that we must all be pursuing. It's a superior form of relationship. A relationship where Jesus lives inside your heart is better than the kind of relationship that the disciples had while Jesus was with them on earth. And that's a powerful form of comfort, is it not? To any kind of fear that you and I might face today. You can have here right now a great relationship to Jesus. And that is the point of chapter 14. 
the superiority of this kind of relationship, and it's an instruction manual for how we can get that kind of relationship. And that's really where Jesus is going to begin here in the text this morning. Before he unfolds the glory and the superiority of this new kind of relationship where he dwells within us, he's first going to tell us how we can get that kind of relationship. This morning, as we get into chapter 14, we're going to examine the way to have, establish, and keep the kind of relationship that Jesus is seeking to give to his disciples here. But before we can examine the right way to go about finding that kind of relationship, we first have to examine the wrong way to get that kind of relationship. So let's just go ahead and start there with examining the wrong way. It's given to us here in chapter 13, verses 36 through 38. See, chapter 13 essentially ends where it began with a brash display of self-confidence from the Apostle Peter, as he yet again embodies the wrong way to approach Jesus. Where Peter, he, he completely ignores what Jesus just said about the new commandment and explodes with a pressing question here. He doesn't talk about the things that Jesus wants to talk about. No, there's only one thing in his mind. And he doesn't take time to reflect upon the words of Christ or to inquire, what does that mean? He basically freaks out. And you can see that there in verse 36. Simon Peter says to him, Lord, where are you going? That's what Peter says. And see, unshaken, Jesus simply reaffirms what he has already said. He says, look, Peter, where I am going, you cannot follow me now. Now, if you'll think back to a couple of weeks ago as we were going through chapter 13, you'll recall our explanation of this idea that Jesus was going to a place where his disciples were not capable of following him at that time. If you remember, the reason why Peter and the rest of them could not go with him is because he was going to take the sin of the world upon his shoulders and die a death upon a cross. And then he would be buried and would conquer death by being raised again from the Father. And then he would proceed to heaven where he would take up his seat next to the Father enthroned there in the glorious throne room of God the Father. That is the hour that has arrived for Jesus, for him to go through that sequence of events, whereby he pays for sin, conquers death, and is restored to the glory of God in heaven. Peter was not qualified to take any of those steps with Jesus. You see, the only way that Peter could get to heaven to be with Jesus and have the life of Jesus is if Jesus left Peter and went ahead to pave the way for Peter. See, that's what Jesus is saying here to Peter in, in verse 36. And, and Jesus goes on to add a statement here. Look, lest you freak out, Peter, he says, you are going to follow me afterward. Now, that's new information in the text. What does that mean? Well, it means that your day to die, to leave this physical life, to ascend into heaven just as Jesus did before you, and stand before the glory of God in his presence, it is coming. You will follow Jesus in that death, resurrection to new life, and presence in the glory of God the Father. 
That day will come for you. That day would come for Peter. And Jesus is pointing Peter and us ahead to that day. But Jesus is telling him here, Peter, that day is not today. Because the only way that you can successfully survive that day is if I go ahead and pave the way for you. If I blaze the trail in front of you, Peter, that's why it's so important that I leave and you can't come with me. You're not ready yet because I haven't done that work on your behalf yet. See, if you understand correctly what I've just explained, the statement of Jesus to Peter here in this text, you'll see that this is a clear, crystal clear statement of how the gospel paves our way to life with God. That's what Jesus is trying to point Peter's attention to. So how does Peter respond to it? Look with me at verse 37. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. See, that response is why we dub this point the wrong way. (laughs) Where Peter essentially says to Jesus, I hear what you're saying, but forget that. I'm coming with you now. Even if I have to wrap my arms around your ankles and hang on for dear life, I will never let you go. In fact, I will die for you if that's what it takes. Well, kudos, Peter, on the best of intentions, but a big fat F on actually understanding the gospel that Jesus is trying to explain to you here. Peter's response to Jesus' message that if you want to be with me, Peter, you've got to cling to my work that I'm going to do for you Peter's response is to say, forget that, I'll do it myself. And then Peter makes a statement that is perhaps the stupidest, most foolish, ironic thing that ever left his mouth. He says, I will lay down my life for you. See, that is very ironic because it was the exact opposite of what was about to really occur. Jesus did not need Peter to lay down his life for him. Peter was not qualified for such a thing. What really needed to happen was the opposite. That Peter needed Jesus to lay down his life for Peter. But he can't understand that. And Peter says here, that's what's going to happen. But Jesus turns and points out the foolishness of Peter's statement to him there in verse 38. He tenderly, lovingly, but directly uses the exact same words that Peter just used in the same exact order. He repeats Peter's statement verbatim back to Peter. It's as though he's holding up a mirror for Peter to show him how ridiculous his statement just sounded. This is one of those, do you hear the words coming out of your mouth kind of moments? See, he says here, the emphasis grammatically in the word order is your life on my behalf, Peter, you're going to lay down? That's ridiculous. See, despite your good intentions, Peter, Jesus goes on in verse 38 to say, Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster won't crow till you have denied me three times. Jesus is saying very clearly to him, not only will your efforts fail, but within the next six hours, you're going to flame out in spectacular fashion. As D.A. Carson says at this point, Peter's intentions and his self-assessment of his strength had vastly outstripped his abilities. And we know that that's the case because if you look at the parallel account over in Mark chapter 14, verse 29, it's recorded that even after Jesus predicts Peter's denial, Peter doesn't back away, 
No, he doubles back down and says, the text says, emphatically, he raises his voice. Even if I must die with you, I will never deny you. And the rest of the disciples join in. See, at this point, all of the disciples, they think that they, in their own strength, by force of their own might, through their own good intentions and the hardest kind of work, have got the capacity to stick it out and stay with Jesus through thick and thin, come what may. But here's the result of their efforts. In a matter of hours, led by Peter, they're all going to scatter like sheep, running, fleeing through the dark, so fast, we're told, that one of them leaves his clothing behind. That's how it was going to turn out for them. See, and therein lies the introductory point for us. If you depend upon yourself to generate a relationship with Christ, friend, you are headed down the wrong path. A relationship to Jesus is not something that can be generated or manufactured through your own efforts. It does not flow from your own good intentions. See, no, a true and lasting relationship with Christ cannot come through your own good deeds or hard work. That is the wrong way. And if you try to trust yourself and rely upon your own strength to manage a relationship to Jesus, Jesus says to you, you are going to fail. See, Peter here in the text, he is entirely self-reliant. And, and because he relied upon himself and his own way, rather than upon Jesus and his way, he ends up falling flat on his face before he ever even gets out of the gate. His self-assured confidence illustrates for us precisely how not to approach having a relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's what Jesus wants Peter to understand. And we know that Jesus wants Peter to understand that because Jesus goes on to explain now, having seen in Peter the wrong way, Jesus goes on in chapter 14 to explain the right way. So, if bootstrapping it is the wrong way to get this kind of powerful relationship that lasts with Jesus, then what is the right way, I ask you? Well, that's what Jesus explains now for us in chapter 14, verses 1 through 4. Look, if the wrong way is through self-confident effort, then the right way is through dependent faith. Look there at verse 1. You can see it right away in the text. Jesus says there, he gives them a very simple and clear command. What does he say? Believe in God. Believe also in me. See, it's not reliance on yourself that establishes that kind of relationship. No, it's reliance upon Jesus Christ. It's as you place your faith in and believe in Him. Now, if that is the right pathway to establishing a relationship with God, we've got to understand what exactly it is that we need to be believing to go down that path. Well, that's exactly what Jesus explains to us here. He's going to give us in these next three verses three things that we must believe. Let me give them to you up front, and then we'll walk through them. First, he says, you must believe in my substitutionary work in your place. You've got to believe in my work for you. The second thing he's going to say is, you've got to believe my word to you. 
all the promises that he's going to make. And he's going to make a lot in the next three chapters. But we'll see just a few that he previews for us here in these verses. And then the third thing is that you've got to believe that both his work and his word are sufficient for your salvation. He died in your place. He's granted you promises. And that work and those words are sufficient for you. That's the nutshell summary of what Jesus is going to explain here. Believe in God, believe in me. What's that look like? Believe. His work, his word, his sufficiency. Let's go through those things one at a time now. Now that we've tried to outline that and make it clear. First, believe in his substitutionary work. We can find this right here in verse 1. And you can see the hint towards this in that command that Jesus gives to stop being troubled. Let me explain. See, Jesus begins this beautiful chapter-long explanation here with a clear admonition. Stop being troubled. Now, if you've been with us for a number of months and you've been paying close attention, that word troubled is going to sound familiar to you. And the reason for that is that in the immediate context, in the run-up to chapter 14, this word troubled has been used three different times. And every time it has been used, it is applied to the person of Jesus. See, in chapter 11, Jesus' spirit is very troubled as he comes to the tomb of Lazarus and contemplates the awful reality of death. We're told he was greatly troubled by the prospect of death. In chapter 12, Jesus goes on to publicly admit before everybody, my soul is greatly troubled now. And here in chapter 13, just a few verses previous in verse 21, we were told yet again, that Jesus was troubled in his spirit. So how can Jesus, with his own heart having been troubled, tell these men with integrity and in good conscience to stop being troubled? At first blush, doesn't that seem to be just a little bit hypocritical? But we need to stop and understand exactly what is happening here. See, the reason why Jesus can issue these men and you a command that says, do not be troubled, is because he was troubled in your place. As the old hymn says, in my place, condemned he stood, not the other way around, Peter. You see, to believe in Jesus means that I cling to the truth that he's already faced the fearsome foe of death so that I might never have to look it in the eyes. I now have no fear because he faced my fear. You see, I now do not know the, wrath, the hot wrath of God upon my back because Jesus took the cup of his wrath and drank it in my place. You see, because he was troubled by my sin and the wrath of God, now I can live free from fear. The only way that we cannot be troubled is if Jesus was troubled for us in our place. And that precisely is what he is calling us to believe. Believe in God, believe in me. What does that mean? It means that you believe in the work that I have done now on your behalf. And therefore, having believed it, 
there is no reason for you to be troubled. You see, that's the point that he's making here in this text. So considering what he's done for you, if you've believed that, let not your heart be troubled. But Jesus goes on in the text and he says, here's what else true saving faith will believe. It will also believe not just in my work on your behalf, it will also believe in my words, in the promises that I have made to you. And as I've said, Jesus is going to give us many promises in these coming chapters, but there's just a few that he previews for us here in these verses. True faith, saving faith, the faith that, that leads you down the right way to have a relation, having a relationship with Jesus. It clings to those things that Jesus has promised to do for you. Look at the first promise that he gives there. He says, for those who believe, there are, verse 2, in my Father's house, many rooms. Friend, you don't have to like push and shove to get to the front of the line when it comes to getting into heaven. No, there, there is a place reserved for you there in God's presence. And Jesus says here, there is plenty of room for whoever will believe and come to me through me. There is a space there for you. There are many rooms in my Father's house. And if that weren't true, Jesus says there in verse 2, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? Are, you? are you going to believe this promise or not? That's what he's calling them to. See, he's comforting them here. The fact that he's leaving to prepare their place with the Father is proof that there is a spot reserved for you. And sure, the disciples in their case, their, their temporal relationship with Jesus, it was coming to an end. But Jesus is saying, I am going to prepare for you something that is so very much better and superior. You see, the next time anybody celebrated Passover, Jesus' spot at the table was going to be empty. He was going to be gone. But where had he gone? He had gone to prepare a spot for them at his father's table. That's better. And he's calling them to say, will, will you believe my promise to go and, and prepare this place for you or, or, or not? This is what it looks like to believe in Jesus. You believe in his promises on your behalf. And, and that's what he goes on to explain because he gives them now another promise in verse 2. If I go to prepare a place for you, what does that mean? I promise to come back and get you and bring you to that place. What good would it be for me to go prepare a place and then just leave it empty? No, if I go, I will be coming back. You can take it to the bank. Do you believe that or not? And that's another ironclad promise. The day is coming when Jesus will return and gather with the glory of heaven, gather us all to himself and into his presence. See, he wasn't abandoning us. No, Jesus was preparing and paving the way for us. It's why he says there, if I go and prepare a place for you, well, I'm going to come again and I will take you to myself. Which then leads us to the third promise that he makes here that we must be willing to believe. And that's this that where I am, there you may be also. See, that's what he has promised to those who are willing to believe. The text literally says here, where I am, again, that's the name of God, Yahweh, there you are. Your person united with God's name. That, friends, is the definition of heaven. Where Yahweh is, 
you are. That's what he's promising to those who will place their faith in him. You know, a lot of people, they they run around these verses and they completely miss the point because they're focused on exactly the wrong thing. They get hung up here on trying to ascertain the meaning of the word that Jesus uses to describe our future heavenly home. See, the King James Version did us no service when it mistranslated the word here, rooms, as mansions. I remember as a kid, and some of you might remember with me, singing songs about the mansion that is waiting for me in heaven. And the song, and that translation, led me to believe that it's the grandness of the house that is waiting for me that should cause me to look forward to being there in that place. And so a lot of people will read this text and get very worked up. You'd be surprised about how nice that house is going to be or what the square footage of their heavenly crash pad is going to be. But that is not the point of this text because I I hate to break it to you and burst some bubbles in the room. The word that Jesus uses here is not the word mansion or palace or anything like it. It is simply a word that means you are going to have a space to live in. There is room for you there with him in his presence. Jesus' point is not to describe what kind of house you're going to have in heaven. His point is to promise you that you will have a spot there with him if you come to him the right way. And it is being in his eternal presence that is the reward, not the amount of space available to you. And besides, time and space work differently in heaven, so don't get too caught up on that. You see, friends, it's the work of Jesus. He was troubled in your place. Do you believe that or not? It's the words of Jesus that he has gone before you to guarantee you a spot. He's promised it. He will bring you back to himself. He's promised that. And there you will be forever. He has promised that. That's what we need to believe. Do you believe in the works and the words of Jesus Christ that he has done for you and given to you? That is the essence of saving faith. And that is what he points these men and us to here in verse 4. He says, and you know the way to where I'm going. That's a statement that points us to a belief in the sufficiency of both his work and his words on our behalf. You see, these men, they had been walking with Jesus for three years. And for three years, Jesus had been showing them the fact that his works came from God. They had seen all of his miracles and they had heard all of his words. They knew that the only way to the Father is through faith. And that's the reason why Jesus says, You know the way to where I am going. Have not my works and my words already been sufficient for you to understand these things? That's what he's pointing them to believe, that the work in the word of Christ is enough to cover my debt before God. He says, you already know the way, for I have explained these things to you. I have shown them to you. I have proven them to you. You see, that's what Jesus is saying here. Friends, let me just boil it all down this way. Salvation is, and it has always been, by grace, through faith alone, in the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ on your behalf. 
You see, salvation can only come when we see ourselves as being insufficient, but Jesus as being all-sufficient. It only comes as we are willing to see ourselves as being weak, but He as being mighty now to save. It comes as you come to a place where you acknowledge your own sinfulness and unworthiness and inadequacy, and you cast yourself upon His promises in faith rather than your own good deeds. See, the only way to have a true relationship to Jesus, the right way to have this kind of relationship, is as you believe in both his word and his work. But so long as you're trying to pull a Peter, so to speak, you will not know the peace of God. Because the peace of God only comes to you to guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus when you believe in Christ Jesus. And thus, you will find yourself able to obey the command to not let your heart be troubled if you've believed in Christ just as you've believed in God. So what what have we learned so far as we've moved our way through this text? Well, the wrong way to pursue a relationship to Jesus? Depend on yourself. Go figure, Peter. But the right way, Jesus just explained it, did he not? To depend on him, his substitution, work in your place. His promises of what awaits you if you will but come to him and the sufficiency of these things on your behalf. See, what's what's been presented to us here are two very different paths. A path whereby you can rely upon yourself and your own efforts to produce a relationship to Jesus. That's the wrong way. Or a pathway whereby you look to him alone. And in the end, friend, as we're going to see now, there really is no choice in front of you. There may appear to be two paths, but there is really only one way. And that's where Jesus goes next here in the text. He is the only way. Look with me at verses 5 through 6. Now, these poor disciples, don't you just feel for them? They are not getting the essence of what Jesus is saying. I mean, it's coming right down the tracks at their foreheads and bink, they just miss it every single time. And, you know, Peter's foray into the conversation doesn't go well. He embarrasses himself here in the text for like the third time in chapter 13. And so a second batter, to use an anachronistic analogy, steps up into the box and takes a swing. Verse 5, we find Peter stepping up and seeking to ask Jesus a question. And it's laced with the same kind of fear and confusion that Peter just displayed. Now, I think it's important for us to notice that Thomas here is not just a doubting disciple. Poor Thomas has been immortalized because of the conversation that happens between him and Jesus in John chapter 20 as being the doubting disciple. And sure, he did doubt in chapter 20, but there was more depth to Thomas than just chapter 20. See, there were other things that were true of Thomas as well. He was actually, believe it or not, one of Jesus' most committed followers. Do you remember the conversation that happened back in John chapter 11, verse 16, where Jesus says, I know everybody's trying to kill me, but I'm going to Jerusalem anyway? And, and Thomas essentially says there, well, guys, um, as he's talking to the rest of the disciples, I know that heading to Jerusalem right now is pretty much nuts, but but Jesus is set on going, and so we may as well go with him and die with him. (laughs) That took some guts on Thomas's part. See, he's a committed follower of Jesus. But despite the fact that this is a courageous man who sure at times has his doubts, 
he is still not understanding here what Jesus is saying. That you, as a human being, cannot muscle your way into a right relationship with God. See, he is looking for a roadmap to a physical place. But Jesus is looking for faith in order to gain entry to a spiritual kingdom. Thomas isn't getting it any more than, than Peter got it. You see, one commentator says it this way, Thomas was thinking of a literal earthly destination that could be accessed by human travel, while Jesus is speaking of an eternal destiny that can only be reached by allegiance to himself. And so even in the way that Thomas speaks here, there's a lonely hurt that you can hear in his voice. He says here, how could we possibly for ourselves have ever known the way to the place where you are going? That's the most literal translation of what he says. There's a hint even of, of accusation and hurt in his tone. Jesus, you're telling us that we know the way. We don't know the way. What are you talking about? And how could we possibly know the way? You just told us that you're leaving after having commanded us to follow you. We're very confused here. And Jesus, I love this about him, he turns to Thomas. And he doesn't snap at Thomas. You dimwit, I just explained it to you. You don't see Jesus doing that. No. What does Jesus do? He proceeds to, to spell out the way in perhaps the clearest, most beautiful statement of truth about how to have a relationship with God that has ever been uttered. What does Jesus say there in verse 6? You want to know how to maintain a relationship with Jesus? You want to know how to get one in the first place? Well, here it is, bottom line, brass tacks, verse 6. Jesus says to him, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. See, that's a very definite concrete statement that flies right up in the face of our postmodern world. I am, Jesus says. Again, that's the name of God, Yahweh. I am who I am based upon the covenants that I have sworn by my own name. And here is who I am. I am your way. I am your truth. I am your life. You want to walk with God forever? You want to know the truth and find his life? You want to find freedom from sin and from trouble and from shame? That Jesus, friend, he is your only answer for he is the way. He is not a way. He is not a perspective option for a way. He is not an optional way. He is the way. See, we we live in a world where that is a very offensive kind of message to people. Our world is inclusive, but Jesus' claim here, it could not be more exclusive. We live in a world of relativism, a, an anything-goes kind of approach, but, but his claim here is absolute. We live in a world that trumpets a do-it-your-way, we-all-end-up-in-the-same-place-anyway sort of theology. But Jesus' claim here could not be more clear. You do it my way or you don't do it at all. You see, it's the arrogant heart of man that wants to believe that there are multiple ways to come find the life of God stretching out before him. And we might think even that there is a choice before us. We can do it on our own like Peter or we can trust him. But in the end, if you would be with God, if you would know the life of his presence, if you would see the truth of his glory, there is no choice. There is only a single way, and that way is Jesus Christ alone. He's the way. 
He's also the truth. He's also the life. And as we work our way down through this chapter, the rest of it, Jesus is going to explain in great depth and detail for us what it means that he is both our truth now and our life to those who have found their way in him. But for today, I want to stop and just challenge us now to consider our own hearts as it relates to the way. Are you, like Peter, trying to manufacture your own way back to God? Are you confident in your own ability to bootstrap it up and stay faithful no matter what comes? Because, well, I know I can do it. Well, friend, if you are, that's not going to work. And Jesus says here very clearly in the text, stop it. And instead, turn to him because he's the only way. And he's just explained what faith in him is supposed to look like. There is no other way. There is no other faith. There can be no other truth. There is no other life. There is only Jesus for you and for me. And if you would but trust him, well, what awaits you is a better kind of relationship than could be had if Jesus was sitting in the pew next to you now. Because if you will come to him as being the way, he will take up his residence inside of you. And there is power to be had in that kind of relationship. I want to close this morning by, by proving to you the kind of power that is had when Jesus goes from sitting next to a disciple to being inside of a disciple. Turn with me over to Acts chapter 4, and we'll close with this, Acts chapter 4. You know, here in chapter 14, 13, as we've seen, even back to chapter 11 with Thomas's statement, the disciples are terrified, shrinking, timid, wilting, violets. But in a few short weeks, they're going to become roaring, fearless lions. What changed? How'd that happen? Well, what changed was the nature of their relationship to Jesus Christ. See, they were better with him in their hearts than they were with him by their sides. Let me show that to you by playing a clip from Acts chapter 4 for you. And I want you to compare their heart here in Acts 4 to what we've just seen of them in John 13 through 14. See, here in Acts chapter 4, Peter and John, they've just been arrested and hauled before the Jewish ruling body because they were preaching Christ too much. And the Jewish rulers have said to each other, we've got to shut these guys up or the whole world is going to follow after them and believe in Jesus as being the way. So we've got to do something to shut this down now. It's getting out of control. And so they haul Peter and John, two heroes back from John chapter 13 and 14, two freaked out disciples back there. They haul them into their presence and say, give an account for yourself what means this nonsense that you would preach of a dead and crucified savior talk to us now and peter just opens his mouth and lets loose with a barrage of a sermon that just bowls right over everybody in the room and here is the heart of peter's response and you can see it right there in verse 12 did peter ever understand the right way or was he stuck in the wrong one well, look with me at Acts chapter 4, verse 12. Peter roars in front of these men. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived 
These are uneducated common men. And they were astonished because they recognized that they had been with Jesus. That's actually incorrect. Jesus was inside of these men. They had a better understanding, relationship, because they now had the roadmap. They had discovered the way with the result that now they know the truth and are emboldened to proclaim it because they understand the vibrancy of life that is found in Jesus Christ alone. Do you see the difference that was found within these men because they came to understand Jesus as being the way and the truth and the life? You see, the truth, it had taken a hold of these men because now it lived within these men. And that, friends, is the superior kind of relationship and power that is available to you and me. And that is what Jesus is going to explain to us in the rest of chapter 14. And it's where we'll pick it up next time. Let's close in a word of prayer here today. Our Father, we do thank you for the person of Jesus Christ, his work on our behalf. Is it not so sufficient for us? We know that it is, and we, we thank you for that. The words that he has given to us, the promises that he has made for us, the things that are awaiting us, Lord, we cling to these things. We believe them. And we come to you knowing that there is nothing that we could ever do to make ourselves acceptable in your sight. The only way for us is to be dependent upon the person of your Son, the one whom you have provided for us. So now may we walk in him, knowing since he is our way, that he is also our truth for today, and he is the power for our living as well. May we walk worthily of these things. May we know them. May we trust them. May every heart found in this room be found in the love of Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his most precious name. Amen. Well, let's stand and close by reading Ephesians chapter, thir- uh, chapter 3, verse 17. Now, may Christ dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge, that you would be filled with the fullness of God. Go in grace today.